Well, this Tuesday uh, marks a very important date in history. Uh, Some of you are looking forward to trick-or-treating, but this Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Really what it marks is that it was 500 years ago this Tuesday, it was October 31st, 1517, when a young monk took a hammer and some tacks and a piece of parchment upon which he had written 95 statements of disagreement with the Catholic Church, points that he wanted to debate, points that he wanted to say to the Pope, you're wrong. He went to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he taught theology, and he went out on the door and he nailed up these 95 theses. Now, I don't think that Martin Luther realized that he was going to start the Protestant Reformation. In fact, we actually need to have a little bit of a a history of Martin Luther to understand why he got to a place where he would nail these 95 statements that were in a lot of ways in the face of the church of the day and the Pope. And so I know you didn't really come to church and say, man, I hope we can talk about history that happened 500 years ago and some guy. But will you listen for just a minute and let me just kind of uh, just give you a little bit of insight into the life of this man, Martin Luther. Some of you I know have heard of him and are quite familiar with uh, the, his life testimony. Others of you, uh, you might not know anything at all about Martin Luther. His name, by the way, Luther, is where we, uh, the denominational name for Lutheran came from. All right? You need to know that um, Martin Luther was influenced by his father's desire to go to law school. Martin Luther was actually born uh, in 1483, they think. They're quite sure it was 1483. They think he was born on November 10th, 1483. He was born in a a copper mining town in Germany. And I mean, you can think of what you know about history in the late 1400s. It was difficult living. His father made a pretty good living in the mining industry, but his father recognized that young Martin, uh, by the time he was a young teenager, they recognized that young Martin Luther had an extraordinary mind and that he was an exceptional young man. And so his father's heart desire was that he would go to university and study law. And so Martin Luther, in obedience to his father, pursued a law degree, and at age 17, he went off to university. It was while he was at university a few years later that there was an incident in his life that dramatically altered the course and direction of his life. He had been home to visit his folks, and on his way back to the university, he was walking. On his way back, he was cutting through a forest, and it was nighttime, and there was a horrific thunderstorm with dramatic lightning, and he was very, very frightened. You need to understand that Martin Luther, along with his extraordinary mind, also was exceptionally sensitive to spiritual things. He really, really wanted to please God. He really, really wanted to know that if he were to die, he would go to heaven. Do you know anybody like that? You think about it. 
And you wonder and you worry that if I were to die, would I really go to heaven? And you know what it is to be afraid. I can remember at age nine slipping out of my bed and going down the hall to my mother's, our guest room in our home in Chicago, Illinois, where my mother was sewing and had her sewing machine in the guest room. I had seen black and white news footage of the Vietnam War and them carrying poncho-wrapped bodies off of helicopters. And it was 1969, and I just thought, sure, that in a few more years, my draft number would come up and I would be killed in Vietnam. And I was afraid. I went and talked to my mom, and though I had prayed to receive Christ at age five, I prayed again that night to, to just that the Lord would give me a peace that I could trust in Him and not be afraid with my life. Martin Luther was a very sensitive young man, and, and in the dark forest that night, he was about age 20, 21, he was walking back to university, this horrific thunderstorm takes place, and a bolt of lightning struck nearby with such horrific thunder as well that he literally fell to the ground or was knocked to the ground I'm not sure which totally knocked the wind out of him and there in the dark he thought he was going to die and he cried out save me Saint Anne I will become a monk bargaining with God have you ever done that if you just get me out of here I'll go to church the next three weeks in a row and I'll even put money in the offering plate isn't it funny how our minds work? Well, that's indicative of the spiritual sensitivity that Martin Luther had. It's indicative of almost a superstitious kind of spirituality that was present in the church of that day. And it was also indicative that it did not occur to him to cry out to God in Jesus' name. He cried out to God in the name of Saint Anne, one of the patron saints of the church to whom he prayed. And he thought it would bargain him some spiritual leverage if he would become a monk. And so much to his father's great dismay, he dropped out of law school and he went and joined a monastery. If you can look closely at the picture, it is true that they actually would shave the top of their head and he just had a ring of hair. Martin Luther was so sincere that he engaged in this life of being a, a monk in a monastery. It was a very, very difficult life. It was a life that was riddled with rules. Where to look. When to turn your head, which hallway to walk down, which side of the hallway to walk down, when to say your prayers, being roused at 3 a.m. to start your chapel prayers, and then every three hours, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, saying your prayers, being holed up in an uncomfortable little room. Martin Luther was so concerned about trying to please God, and it was thought that any kind of personal comfort was of the flesh and of the world. And so they would deny themselves any kind of worldly comfort. They largely lived on bread and water as they, as they uh, did their meditations. They didn't actually study the Word very much. They said repetitious prayers, and they, they sought somehow to please God with their lives, and they were being trained to be priests as well. In fact, Martin Luther purposely wore very coarse burlap-type underwear so that it would chafe his skin, so that he would be uncomfortable no matter what position he was in. That discomfort somehow driving him to God. 
They slept on board bunks with no mattresses, limited hours of sleep. Martin Luther would purposely choose to go three days at a time without the bread and water, simply trying to please God, simply trying to somehow, in his soul, satisfy the reality that he could know God. He admitted later in his writing that he actually hated God at this time in his life. He recognized he did not love God. And he was afraid that he would burn in hell because he did not love God. They would turn the, they would go without heat and with, and with thin clothing in the wintertime just to be cold, just to be uncomfortable. And yet in all of his studies, in all of his discomfort, in all of his ritual, in all of his repetitious prayers, he could not find ease for his guilty conscience for his sin. He was so sensitive spiritually that he would go to the priests to confessional and he would weary them because he would stay in the confessional booth sometimes over six hours trying to just think up and drum up every kind of sinful act or behavior from his past in his psyche, in his conscience, somehow trying to to dump out all of the sin to this priest who could somehow represent him before God and he could find forgiveness of sin and none of this satisfied him. And then one day he was given an assignment to go to Rome and he was glad to do this. When he arrived at Rome and he could see the city skyline, he, he laid down prostate on the ground and he worshiped because he was in Rome. In Rome there is a a set of steps, it's there to this day, called the, the Scala Sancta. It's a set of steps that it is believed that Jesus walked up when he appeared before Pontius Pilate. Church tradition said that these steps had been moved in the 4th century to Rome. What pilgrims would do and what Luther did that day when he arrived is he went to those steps and pilgrims were taught... That, that they could find appeasement for the guilt of sin on these steps. And they would walk these steps one step at a time. They would kiss the step and then they would quote the Lord's Prayer. And they would slowly progress their way up, kissing every step on their hands and knees. And quoting the Lord's Prayer at every step and quoting prayers. Rising and Martin Luther admitted, I got to the top of the steps and I wasn't sure that I had accomplished one thing in the presence of a holy God. Well, Martin Luther began to grow and develop in his theological understanding of the Word of God. He was a little bit radical in that he had found a copy of scriptures. And even when he was at the monastery, he had been reading scriptures. You need to understand that that they didn't have their own copy of scriptures and they weren't allowed to read it. And in fact, all of the masses and prayers were in Latin. And he knew Latin. He was recognized as a, a brilliant student And as he developed and grew, he was given the assignment to go to Wittenberg, Germany, and there to teach theology at the at the Castle Church, at their university there. There was something that was going on that bothered Martin significantly that you need to understand. Um, And it had to do with a, a slow awakening sensitivity to the reality that all of the rituals of the church could not appease sin in the eyes of a holy God. Something that the church taught was that there was a such thing as indulgences. And really, the reason that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the door, it was basically a statement arguing that the Pope needed to change the abuse of indulgences. Indulgences were largely papal pardons for sin 
It was something that you could go to your priest, to your church, and you could give money, and they would give you credit. It was a credit card that covered your sin. What a deal. For five bucks, you can have this little sin. Or you could even pay ahead if you thought you were going to sin. You could buy an indulgent for future sin. And so as long as you paid money, you got credit for forgiveness of sin. Uh, it was a lessening of time also. It had to do with the doctrine of purgatory, which is still taught today in the Roman Catholic Church. That's the idea that uh, with maybe the exception of Mother Teresa, all other people will go to purgatory where their sin will be finally cleansed and taken care of. And then based upon the amount of prayers that go on, or masses that are held in your name, you will be able to speed up purgatory. They had little jingles even in that day, where when the coin hits the cup, mama steps in heaven. And they had little sayings and things that, and, and it was an abuse of indulgence. You need to think of these indulgent salesmen who would set up their booths outside the courts of the churches in those days, selling indulgences. It became so ridiculous that it was... It was really worse than like the televangelists of the day today where they abuse the gospel for personal gain and have Rolls Royces and, and, and Learjets and mansions and beach houses. And it's obvious that they abuse the gospel for personal gain. That's the indulgent salesman of the day. Martin Luther was sickened by this and he recognized that, that the Pope was speaking for God and he just, it didn't resonate with him. So you need to understand that when he, when he nailed the indulgent, the, the 95 thesis to the wall, he actually still believed in purgatory. He actually believed that there was a place for indulgences, but he was arguing that they had gone too far with it. And he was trying to reform the Catholic Church. He really wasn't trying to start a Protestant Reformation. He was trying to reform the Catholic Church. In fact, I think it's interesting. Uh, St. Peter's Basilica today is a, a phenomenally beautiful building. And this building in Rome, this is where the Pope often speaks from the balcony. That building, which is an uh, unbelievable construction, some of you may have actually been there, um, was built, paid for, by the indulgence sales of poor people. By selling indulgences, it started in the 1400s and went up through the 1500s. It took almost 100 years to build the thing. There's a picture of the inside. It's just unbelievable. Well, we need to speed ahead. And So what you have is you have Martin Luther beginning a debate about indulgences, trying to correct the church, trying to change the thinking of the Pope. What happened was, uh, speeding up and just hitting the surface, is as Martin Luther continued to grow, it was about two years later, after he nailed the thesis on the door, of which we're celebrating the 500th anniversary this Tuesday, 500 years ago, in his own study of the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, like a, like a branding iron through his brain, the lights flashed on in Martin Luther two years after this event that, that Paul was teaching that the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That is, apart from works and faith in Jesus Christ. And there you have the beginning of theological transformation. There are many other names in the Reformation, men like John Huss, Men that began, and you began then a whole redefining of what 
salvation meant, how salvation is attained, and the reformers actually became men with prices on their head. Martin Luther in his debates, and some of his debates are, are famous, um, he ended up be, being declared by the Pope a heretic, and when he was declared a heretic, it meant that his life was on the line, and in fact, he had to go into hiding in which he ran for some 10 years, during which that time, when he was holed up hiding, much of that time is when he translated the Bible into German, so that the German people could read the scriptures for themselves. That's something else the reformers brought to us, was the translation of scripture out of Latin, the Vulgate, into the common languages of the day. Well, those reformers were remarkable men. They didn't dot their I's and cross their T's in all the same way that we would. Martin Luther was very Catholic in much of his theology, but he began to understand the gospel of grace. And in fact, as the reformers studied and as the reformers developed, they came up with five foundational concepts about salvation upon which we stand yet today. We call them the solas of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin word for only, and these five are not the order that we're doing them in on our sermon today, but sola gratia, that means by grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. And sola scriptura, scripture alone. Listen, these concepts that we take for granted based upon scriptures that we repeat without thinking were radical concepts that were dramatic, were a dramatic affront to the thinking of the day and the theology of the day in a corrupt church, in a pope who thought he was God. And Martin Luther put his life on the line to save the gospel message. He didn't even realize that's what he was doing. And so here we are today, still standing on the five solas of the Reformation. And here at this 500th anniversary, I thought it would be good for us to remind ourselves of these fundamental basic truths that were given to us in this most dramatic fashion. Let's turn to our notes and, and let's just dig in. I know that some of the scriptures that we're going to look at today are going to be uh, very elementary to some of you. And yet, I think there's others of you here today who have never heard of Martin Luther. You don't know anything about the Reformation. You've never heard of the Solas before. And in fact, it will be very good for you to look up some of these basic verses that we're going to look at together. Let's begin with Sola Scriptura because it's the foundation upon which we build all else. If the scriptures are not the word of God, then we have a problem, don't we? Sola Scriptura, it means scripture alone. Looking at our notes, scripture alone. So what, what, what the reformers did was they took a stand upon the authority of scripture and they put their very lives on the line in so doing. So there was a focus on the authority, the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. Taking a stand upon the authority of Scripture, the Reformers put their very lives on the line. It was a reaction against the practices of the Roman Catholic Church and papal authority. Much of what they believed back then, they still believe today. It's just become, in our culture and country, much more acceptable to be nominal in the Catholic faith. 
What did they believe? What was it that Martin Luther, in his view of scriptures, was reacting against? Why was it that he had to say, the scripture is our authority? Because you need to understand that in the Roman Catholic Church, their theology taught then and teaches today that there is a three-strand cord of truth. They believe the Bible, that's number one. The church believed that truth was determined by, number one, the scriptures. It would include the apocryphal books, which we would not hold to. We believe that they were later editions. They don't fit with the rest of scripture. We hold to the 66 books that we have. The church believed that truth is determined, number one, by the scriptures, But then they added to that the magisterium. What's the magisterium? The magisterium would be the Pope. And it would be church councils and church leaders. So cardinals and bishops, when they get together and hold councils, could sit at a table and they could agree together what is truth. This is the truth. And they would declare themselves... In reaction to the reformers' behavior and teaching and writings and debates... One of the councils that took place over the course of about 20 years is the Council of Trent. Here's an example of what I mean by truth being determined by the Pope or by the magisterium, by the leadership of the church or at a council. Many of the established statements of the Council of Trent are still affirmed and being reaffirmed today. I saw an article not long ago where one of the popes reaffirmed part of the Council of Trent. That meant that it is truth. What's interesting is that someday another Pope can turn around and say, we're going to change that, and that is truth. One of the most common occurrences has to do with the difference, one of the the core differences of of the difference between a Protestant evangelical and, and Roman Catholic theology. It was brought to light about 30 years ago when a group of Um, Roman Catholic scholars and a group of evangelical Christian leaders came together and they wanted to bring back, they wanted to undo, as it were, the Reformation and they wanted to unite Catholicism with evangelicalism. There's some really interesting names that were involved in that. Chuck Colson was one of them. It's a name some of you would recognize. Anyway, these guys got together and, and they made a statement And the statement that they could agree on, Catholics and evangelicals together, that they could agree on is something like this. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. You agree with that statement? Raise your hand. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. I got my hand up. I believe that. But do you know what? What they didn't agree on was adding one word at the end of that sentence. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And do you know why Catholics wouldn't agree with that statement? Is because way back at the Council of Trent, a, a sequence of meetings that lasted almost 20 years in reaction to Martin Luther's 95 Theses, that one of their statements, and I'm loosely paraphrasing, was that if anyone believes that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, may they be anathema. Strong language, isn't it? And that statement stands yet today. And that's what Martin Luther was fighting against. And the abuses of all of the mindset of the day that was going on around this matter 
of salvation. Well, we're back in our notes. We're talking about sola scriptura. Why do we hold to the fact that scripture alone is our authority? Well, in Martin's day and even today, he was dealing with a church that believed that we take the scripture, we take the magisterium, we take then sacred tradition, number three, sacred tradition. And these traditions, why do we believe this is true? It's because we have always believed it. And there are church traditions upon which they stand equally with Scripture. And Martin Luther began to realize over the course of his mature lifetime that this could not be so because it contradicted Scripture. And little by little, this foundational concept of sola scriptura began to shape the mind of the Reformers. Now the Reformers believed then that the Word of God alone is truth. Only the Word of God is truth. Well, let's, let's turn in our scriptures and let's see what it is that they base some of their thinking upon. Number one, that the Bible is inspired by God. Number one, the Bible is inspired by God. Therefore, it is truth and truth alone. And though it's a familiar verse to some of you, let's look these verses up. Because to others of you, they might be brand new. Or sometimes we assume that they're so familiar, we stop looking them up and then... And then they're so old, they become new. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Peter wrote, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. See, it didn't come from people writing it. The Pope can't dictate it. Councils cannot give direction on it. It doesn't come from people, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were guided by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God came to us through men, through the Holy Spirit, directly from God. Therefore, it alone has authority. Over to 2 Timothy, over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Take a look there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God. Isn't that an interesting phrase? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It wasn't just the opening sentence that influenced the reformers of that verse. That idea of God-breathed is the word inspiration. You've heard that, haven't you? The idea that God inspired the word of God. Through men. Their personality shaped it. If you read Paul, you can kind of pick up on that. If you read Peter, you can pick up on that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all kind of shaped by their... But the Holy Spirit guided and direct them and dictated, as it were, the words that they were to say. Carried them along so that they wrote down exactly what God wanted written down for us. And it was as though God breathed it into them. Inspired. Well, if this is the inspired word of God, how can someone come along and say, no, it doesn't mean that, it means something else? How can they put something that's not even in the Bible and establish it as a main doctrine of the church? It's not our authority. Not only that, number two, I want you to see that they believe that the Bible was without error. The Bible was without error. 
a verse that we would look to for that, for example, and you don't have to turn there, but I wrote it down for you, is Psalm 19.7. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And it transforms and revives and renews us. It has an innate spiritual power. The word for without error that we use is similar to that. It's inerrant. It is an inerrant word. So not only is it an inspired word, but it is an inerrant word. It is without error. Not only that, we believe that the Bible then is taught to be understood by all. I was referencing my Bible still open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So not only is it inspired, but it is a profitable word for teaching and for training and for correction and and for growing spiritually. And what we're talking about here impacted the reformers as well. And the Bible is to be taught and understood by all, was, was their cry. The Bible isn't to be just kept aside from the people and, and, and the communication in the church in a language that they might not even understand, like Latin. At the end of the first service, I had a guy in our church who's about 70 come up to me and he said, Pastor Van, I grew up, I grew up uh, Catholic and I was an altar boy. And he said, when I was a kid, all of the masses were still in Latin at our church. He said, I didn't understand a single word they said ever. And the reformers understood that that was no way to handle the word of God. That the word of God was to be understood by the people. That the word of God was written for the people. That it was God's message to the people. And so they, it was to be taught and understood. And I, I, 2 Timothy is not 2-4, it's 4-2. That we are to, uh, 2 Timothy 4-2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The Word of God is to be taught, and the Reformers saw that in Scripture. And they recognized that there was a great flaw in the system when the Bible was being held back from people. And that's why when we hold our Bibles, we owe a great debt to the Reformers. Because of the Reformation, the Bible began to be translated into the common languages of the people. It began to be translated into the common languages of the day. German and French and English. Other languages, rather than only in Latin. And they had to put their very lives on the line for it. Do you know that? When you hold your Bible, there's blood on every page. Do you know that? I mean, it's a story about the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. But the Bible didn't come easy to the common people of the day. You know, I probably have 20 Bibles down in my office. We have Bibles everywhere. We throw them in the back window of the car. They're under piles of junk in the back seat. They're up on the shelf. They're under a pile of magazines. They're everywhere. We hold lightly to our Bibles. The reformers didn't. They put their very lives on line. They had to leave their homes. They left their countries. They were chased around all over Europe. Many were burned at the stake, had their heads cut off, impaled with spears because they were trying to translate the Bible into the language of the people. When you pick up your Bible, you need to know there's blood on every page. It was brought to you in your language at a huge price. Don't take it lightly. It's incredible. And there we have foundation number one of the reformers, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone. There it is. Well, let's move on. Another cry of the reformers was sola fide. 
faith alone. Faith alone. What we're talking about now is, is the heartbeat of salvation, the essence of what it means to know that your sin is forgiven and you're going to heaven. In Sola Fide, the idea is uh, that when Martin Luther was reading the text of Romans and it hit him like a, like a lightning bolt that the righteous shall live by faith, the word is faith, the reformers held to the truths of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for example. That is, salvation is solely through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Sola Fide was an affront to the good works, to the good works taught by the Catholic Church. You see, when, when Martin Luther thought he was going to die when that lightning bolt struck near him in the forest on his way back to university, his fear was that he would go to hell because he didn't have a priest there to confess his sin to. See, he, he was baptized as an infant, and that was part of the formula of salvation. He went to masses. That was part of the formula of salvation. He said prayers. And they even used beads, and they prayed to Mary, and they prayed to other saints. But what, they, what the Reformers started to understand is that the Scriptures don't teach praying to saints. The Scriptures don't teach that because you sprinkle water on a baby, that somehow that brings saving grace to that child, that that's not in the Bible. And they begin to understand that you got to come to the cross and you recognize that Jesus Christ went to the cross, died for your sin, and by faith, you believe that to be true for yourself. And it's faith alone minus the works. You don't have to put money in the offering plate. You don't have to count beads. You don't have to pray to saints. You don't have to even be baptized. We're baptized out of obedience after salvation, the Bible teaches. So all of the good works that were taught to try to make sure you felt like you were saved, this was a total affront to the church. Salvation is a free gift to all who what? Who believe in Jesus Christ. That's why we love John 3.16 so much. It's the gospel in a capsule, isn't it? For God so loved the world. Who's the world? The world's all the people. All the dirty, rotten sinners of the world. God loved us. Romans explains to us that he loved us even while we were yet sinners. You don't clean up and come to God. He loves you just the way you are. He knows you're a sinner. He knows you can't save yourself. He knows you can't get to heaven on a buffalo chip or whatever it is. You can't get there on roller skates. You can't jump high enough to get there. There's nothing you can do. Faith alone. Recognizing that God loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, sometimes when we're working with young people or even adults, sometimes I'll use John 3.16 and I'll put their name in the whosoever spot. For God so loved instead of the world, for God so loved Van that he gave his only begotten son, that if Van would believe in him, Van will have everlasting life. Listen, that was a radical concept in the day of Martin Luther and the Reformers, that there's no works. It's just faith in what Jesus Christ did for you. You couldn't do it by yourself. You cannot impress a holy God. But trusting what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and his finished work, his substitutionary death, substituting in for you, believing that to be true, accepting that to be true, 
is faith alone. Closely related is sola gratia, number three. Sola gratia, grace alone. Grace alone. This is the emphasis of the gift of salvation. Again, Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace. Sola fide emphasizes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the emphasis of by grace. What is grace? Grace is when you receive something you don't deserve. And you don't deserve it. And you get it anyway. What's that all about? You didn't pay for it. You didn't do enough to, re- to earn it. You can do anything to earn it or it wouldn't be grace. If you earned it, it would immediately not be grace. Because grace is totally gift-based. I mean, I'm embarrassed about myself that I have my pants on today and don't have a knife on me. But that's, that's a sign of weakness, I think. But... Um, I often reach in my pocket and get my pocket knife that I often carry. And when I'm talking to to a young man or something, and we're talking about salvation, I'll hold out my pocket knife and I'll say, here, you can have my knife. I have actually given them away before. And and they don't know what to do. So if someone offers you a pocket knife and it's a gift, what do you do? You reach in your pocket and get a dollar bill and say, hey, let me give you a buck for it. Is that a gift? It's a good deal, but it's not a gift. And so, to receive the gift, all you have to do is reach out and take it, right? And it's there. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't pay for it. You, you didn't jump through hoops. You just reached out. And that's what he's talking about here. The idea that it is by grace through faith. Salvation comes from God and is undeserved, is the undeserved working of God as he attributes to Christ the consequences of our sin. That is, all of the guilt of my sin is heaped upon Christ on the cross. And God takes the sin that I did and that I'm guilty of and that I am identified with at birth even. I'm born a sinner and then because I'm born a sinner, I continue to sin all my life. All of that sin is identified with Christ who did no sin. And then by grace, the free gift, by faith, I accept back from God a free gift from Christ that is directed at me, and that is the righteousness of Christ. By faith, I become identified with that righteousness. That is, by believing in Christ, it's as though the good, perfect life of Christ is attributed under my name in heaven. Really, my name is put under the blood of Christ in heaven. And when God looks at me, he sees no dirty, rotten sinner. He sees only the righteousness of Christ. And I say, whoa, ha, <laughs> ha. That is so good. That is so good. And it was a free gift of grace. Isn't that remarkable? And the reformers, this began to crystallize. This became part of their their gospel battle cry. And they pulled back the gospel from a corrupt church that was trying to make it to where you had to earn your way to heaven. Sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone. Salvation is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God, they said. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. But the what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That leads us to number four, solus Christus, Christ alone. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Solus Christus, the reformers were realizing that salvation had everything to do with Christ and nothing to do with themselves. 
and that this was the message of the gospel of Scripture, Christ alone, that is, that salvation letter A is possible only through Christ alone, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8, that if Christ didn't do his work, we are of all men wretched and lost and hopeless. Letter B, Christ alone is the one mediator between God and man. This is a very important point, that Christ alone is the one mediator between God and man. Let's look at 1 Timothy. You might still be in 2 Timothy if you left your Bible open. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look here what Paul taught. And this is what was coming together in the minds of the reformers as they understood the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at here it is, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, Martin Luther had strained in the confessional booth for hours trying to transfer his sin to a priest who would represent him to God through the saints. And then one day it dawned on him, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I'll tell you something, that's one of the greatest truths you could ever understand in your brain and in your heart. That Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and represents you personally. He is our high priest. I need no other priest and I need no other argument. I have Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, upon the truths of the scripture alone. Do you see how the reformer's mind was developing? And there it is, the centrality of Christ in the gospel message. It gets it off the Pope, it gets it off the priest, it gets it off the Mass, it gets it off the prayers, focuses on the cross, focuses on the shed blood of Christ, apart from which there is no, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, and it is Christ alone. And all of this is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. This was a call of the reformers to focus all of one's life to be lived to the glory of God alone. We do not live to keep rules or please a church or the Pope or anyone else. We live to please God and God alone. We live to please God and God alone. Really, the Pope's not our first worry, is it? It's the glory of ourselves that we have to worry about, isn't it, so much? We live for for self-adulation so often but that we would be just a reflection that all that, if there's any good, that it would only reflect on the goodness of God in our lives, that God is a loving Heavenly Father, and whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory, great things he has done that he would receive the glory in all of this. There's the five solas. And here we stand today upon the revolutionary work of the reformers that began 500 years ago with a young theology instructor who had been a monk who had no idea what he was really getting into. Why does it matter? Well, 
Let's recognize today that these five solas are anchor points keeping us from theological drift, aren't they? They are anchor points to keep us from theological drift. That we would stand on these five solas and we would not compromise and we would recognize that it is our ruler. This is what the Word of God teaches. This is what holds us to the true gospel message. Keeps us from drifting. Secondly, they are priorities. They are priorities upon which to focus our energies and our resources as the church of Jesus Christ. I think in a lot of ways, these five solas, they, they need to permeate everything we do in the church. And if we start getting into stuff, you know, we're running some bowling league or something for our church, and it doesn't really help us with the five solas, then we probably ought to cut the bowling league. It helps us establish priorities. What are we teaching our children? What are the priorities? The five solas. What are we teaching our teens? The five solas. What are we teaching our adults? The five solas. What do we want our families to understand? The five solas. I mean, we got to know more, but, and there's a lot around that in Scripture, but it gives us a set of priorities, doesn't it? Thirdly, they are distinctives upon which to build our identity in the community and the world. They are distinctives upon which to build our identity in the community. Well, what's that church all about? Well, that's the church that believes in the five solos. That's a pretty good brand, isn't it? Churches represent all kinds of things today. Churches are known for all kinds of things today. In fact, perhaps one of the greatest problems with many churches is that they, they don't identify themselves with distinctive doctrines. And if ever there's a set of foundational truths to help us identify who we are in the community, I think the five solos are it. Fourthly, they're a biblical basis upon which to identify with other believers for fellowship and a common faith. That's kind of related to number three, but this idea of fellowship, and you know there's pastors in the community I've never met. Pastors, people ask me, are you going to that pastor's breakfast? Um, I don't have anything in common with them. They don't believe in the five solas. I do. I'm only, the only reason I'm not driving a dump truck with a backhoe behind putting in septic tanks, my life dream for a business, is because of the five solas. And I'm not in this for fun and to go have breakfast with people who, who think that I am a moron because I do believe in the five solas. You see what I mean? I don't want to be an angry fundamentalist. I don't want to be a mean old guy. I want to be friendly and nice and, and in addition to this community. But I am not embarrassed of the five solas. And I really don't have time to mess around with people who think that I'm a moron because of the five solas. That's who we are. We're the church of the five solas. It's a template by which we test ourselves at the personal level of our own faith and convictions, isn't it? It's a template by which we test our own personal faith and convictions. You have to ask yourself this morning, what do we really believe? Or what do I really believe? What do we really believe? What do you really believe about how you're going to get to heaven? I hear all kinds of answers from people all the time. Well, how, do you, how are you going to get to heaven? If, if today's your day to enter into eternity, what are you resting upon in your thinking that's going to get you to heaven? What do you really believe? I've been a pretty good guy. 
Well, you know, if, if my good works outweigh my bad works, surely God will let me into heaven. I'm a really nice guy. Man, my neighbors love me. Yeah, man, your works of righteousness are as filthy rags, the Bible says. And it's only by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, by grace alone, Christ at the center, that you can know God and be fit to enter heaven. What do you really believe? What is it you really stand for? What are the non-negotiable convictions of our lives? What are the non-negotiable convictions of our lives? If I would challenge you and you young people who are in college and young people who are starting out careers, and you're looking to get married, if you don't marry somebody who doesn't hold to the five solas, that would be part of your conviction framework. I'm not compatible with that person. And I'm at university, and it doesn't mean you can't be friends with pagans. You can't go to university and not be friends with pagans. But what is it you really stand for and live for? Can I suggest that you build your life upon Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone? If you go to university and just live your life for the glory of God, it'll change everything about you. May God bless us as we stand on the five solas. Let's stand and close in prayer. So what are you depending on to get yourself into heaven, friend? Is it faith in Jesus Christ alone by his grace? Have you admitted your sinfulness and believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Today is the day of salvation. Call out to God right now in the privacy of your own mind and affirm your faith in Jesus Christ alone. I would encourage you to do that. Father, thank you for the challenge of the reformers. Thank you for the work of grace that you did in them. As difficult as it must have been, as as flawed of men as they were and imperfect as they were, what a remarkable reality through the guiding of your Holy Spirit and through the centrality of Scripture, how you rescued the gospel from a corrupt church in difficult days. And we have the privilege of building upon them. Lord, help us to stand strong for your word, scripture alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Help it to be true of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. Thank you.